Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say I'm here with Raj Sisodia. He is uh, a thought leader in conscious capitalism. He's a professor of global business at uh, Babson College. He is the co-chair and co-founder of Conscious Capitalism Inc., uh, the author of multiple books. Raj, welcome to the show. Thank you, Richard. Happy to be with you today. Yes, uh, I'm delighted. And as I was just saying, before we came on air, uh, I was interviewing a, a previous guest on the show, Kim, Kim Pullman. Uh, she's the, the founder of Reboot the Future. And on her desk before we went into the interview was the book, The Healing Organization. I recognize the name of the author because uh, you're also the author of Conscious Capitalism, Capitalism, which when I read it was a huge inspiration on me. It was a huge inspiration for me. And so now having this chance to read The Healing Organization and to speak to you about it, is, it feels like a great honor. So, oh, always happy to talk about The Healing Organization. Right. And before we get into that and, and some of the concepts and more, perhaps more importantly, the stories that you share in that book, tell us a little bit about you and your background uh, and how you came to this, be in this position uh, with this interest in, in conscious capitalism. Yeah, well, so I uh, grew up um, in India until the age of seven, and then we lived uh, abroad for about five years in Barbados, California, and Canada, and went back to India when I was 12, and finished up my high school, and uh, and then went off to do engineering, because that's what you did, if you happen to be good in math and science. You know, in those days, you didn't talk about purpose, and what's your passion, and all that. It's just like, how are you going to get a job, you know? Right. So you kind of get steered into engineering or medicine if you're good in biology or if you're good in math. And if not, uh, you know, you get a Bachelor of Arts and uh, God help you. you know? So I <laughs> get a government job, I suppose. So I ended up becoming an engineer, but I really had no passion for that. And then I went off to business school because the salary would be double and uh, you get to work in an air-conditioned office. So I said, okay, that sounds better than this. So I, I did my MBA in Bombay. And I chose marketing because I didn't like finance. And and then one day I'm coming down for breakfast and I see about eight of my friends dressed up and going somewhere. And I said, where are you going? We don't have any classes today. I said, we're going to the U.S. Information Agency to get GMAT applications. For uh, And I said, why do you need that? We're already doing our MBA. They said, we want to apply for a PhD in business in the U.S. I said, wow, I didn't know you can get a PhD in business. Like, Give me five minutes, I'll come with you as well, you know, because I had lived in the U.S. as a child and I wanted, you know, I, I would have liked to come back if I could. So so I did. And the irony is that I'm the only one from that group of nine who ends up coming here and getting a Ph.D. And so I get a scholarship to Columbia in New York. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'm going to be a professor now. You know, that's just like life takes a turn. Right. And there was no grand plan or vision for any of that. But as I became a marketing professor and academic and and looked around to see what intrigued me as a research subject. Uh, the one thing that jumped out at me was just the sheer volume of marketing and the inauthenticity of much of it. That we were spending at one point a trillion dollars on marketing in 2004, that is steady later. And that was the GDP of India that year. And I said, we're spending a lot of money. I mean, for 300 million people, the amount of money that a billion people are living on, and uh, we're spending that on ads and coupons and junk mail and all this kind of stuff, you know, this hyper hoopla uh, around business. And I said, what are we getting for all that? And uh, what are we getting for customers, for companies and for society? And so that, that 
inquiry for about 10 years, you know, was the primary focus of my research, looking at marketing efficiency and effectiveness and ethics. And concluding at the end of 10 years, that it's a pretty bad situation. I mean, we're not doing well, we're spending more, getting less, worse outcomes. We maybe have a negative impact on society in terms of values, in terms of obesity, in terms of encouraging overconsumption of certain things. Uh, so it wasn't working for customers, wasn't working for companies, wasn't working for society. So I said, there has to be a better way. You know, so I did a book called Does Marketing Need Reform? And a conference on that theme. <clears throat> and then um, I embarked on what was going to be the magnum opus of everything that was going to be, uh, everything wrong with marketing. Right? And uh, I was calling it the shame of marketing. Uh, a phrase used by Peter Drucker to describe the consumer movement in America. He said, marketing's job is to look after the well-being of customers. If they have to organize against companies and they're not doing a job, that's a shame of marketing. So I was going to use that to basically make the case about how everything was wrong. And fortunately, I got good advice from my mentor. And he said, you know, people would rather hear about the solution and not the problem. So do we have a solution to offer? That simple insight kind of turned my thinking around. And I called it in search of marketing excellence. And I said, let's find companies. Most companies spend a ton of money on marketing and get lousy outcomes. Customer loyalty and customer trust have plummeted. Even as spending has skyrocketed. So there's something wrong there. So what's the opposite of that? Spend less and have tremendously loyal and trusting customers. And so we set out to look for those kinds of companies. And we found a handful of them. And as we started to look at how did they manage their marketing function, we found that it was almost an afterthought. They didn't really care about marketing as such. You know, that Whole Foods was one of the companies. They didn't have an ad agency. They didn't have a chief marketing officer. They spent 90% less on marketing than their peers. But they took care of their customers, and they had a values alignment with their customers, right? And uh, so as we, as we looked further to say, okay, what, what causes this to happen? We found that, well, the employees are also loyal and trusting, right? And the suppliers have a long-term uh, relationship with these companies, Communities really embrace them. So all of their stakeholders are deeply connected to them and care about their well-being. So they care about the well-being of employees, customers, et cetera, and all of those stakeholders in turn care about the well-being of that company. And what binds them together are a set of values and a, a clear purpose. Whole Foods exists for a reason, not just to make money. It has to make money, of course. But it, it, it came into being in order to change the way we think about food and to change the way food is produced. Right? that it matters what you put into your body, it matters to your health, the health of the food system and the health of the planet as a whole. And that's their guiding purpose. And that's what attracts um, customers and employees and investors and suppliers and others to be part of that uh, company. Right, So purpose and shared values, kind of the glue that holds everybody together and then points them in the same direction. So all the stakeholders are now aligned, right? Uh, because we have the share. If you don't have a shared purpose, then you're literally at cross purposes. Customers just want the lowest price. Employees just want the highest pay and least work. Investors just want the highest return. Society wants the highest taxes. And managers want the highest bonuses. Well, when you have a shared purpose, and everybody is sort of operating on the same side of the table. We are all kind of in it together, trying to figure out how to make the whole thing work better. So we discovered these, these principles of uh, what we would later call conscious capitalism, the higher purpose stakeholder mindset or integration of the well-being of all stakeholders. Uh, and it takes uh, conscious leaders to do that. Leaders are not just about power and money, but they also care about the people and the purpose and uh, a caring and a transparent, trusting culture. 
So those are the four pillars of conscious capital. So that book came out as Firms of Endearment in 2007. And we did the financial analysis at the end of our research. We found companies that fit this profile where they had a sense of purpose and looked after all their stakeholders, et cetera. And we had 28 of those companies featured in the book. And then at the end, we did our financial analysis and fully expecting that these companies would perform okay, but not exceptionally because they're not trying to profit maximize. They're trying to achieve their purpose and do it in a way that is good for the people. So we said, you know, they pay their people better than their competitors like Costco pays double of Walmart. They are investing in, in, uh, in benefits at a higher level. They're taking care of their customer experience better. They are paying their suppliers better. They're not squeezing their suppliers. So suppliers can also be profitable and innovative. They're investing in their local communities. They're investing in the environment. They're investing in, and they're paying taxes at a higher rate. So we thought maybe there's less money left over at the end of the day for investors. And maybe that's okay if you look at the total value being created in that system. But actually, we found that these companies outperformed the market by a nine to one ratio over a 10 period, right? So that became like, wow, it's not a choice between being good to people and the planet and all of that and making money that the two go you know, together very well if you have a cohesive, well-thought-out business that's rooted in the right things. So that kind of became a, an important discovery for me as well as for many people and it kind of became the intellectual foundations for this conscious capitalism movement. And some of the companies featured in that book like Whole Foods and Southwest Airlines and Container Store and Costco and so forth have become some of the core companies and leaders that are part of this movement. And, and then through that process, I kind of discovered my life purpose because I was kind of this um, uh, you know, reluctant marketing professor. I kind of had almost a self-loathing about my own profession. You know, bit, have you had the, uh, the the Bill Hicks line, the stand-up comedian Bill Hicks, when he yeah. point, points to the audience and says, anybody in, in marketing, kill yourself. <laughs> kill oh yourself my God, now. Right. really? I didn't yeah, know that line. Famous clip, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, my, my father got a PhD in plant science and in, in cytogenetics, you know. And so my inner dialogue used to be that my father is trying to cure world hunger and I'm trying to sell you some more potato chips. Right. right. I mean, I didn't have the sense of nobility in my, in my goal. But I remember the moment I discovered it when, when I was writing some of the stories of these, these companies and how moving those stories were and how deeply they cared about their employees and community and their families. And, and I literally had tears in my eyes as I'm sitting there trying to write. And I told my co-author, I said, David, I think I just, my purpose just found me. I think this is what I want to devote the rest of my life to. I said, I've never had a positive emotional reaction to my work before. You know, when you have tears of joy connected to your work, you know, there's something special there, right? We often have tears of frustration or anger, but uh, not joy. So, so that kind of guided me to my purpose. And that's really been uh, for the last 15 years, you know, an amazing experience to be part of this movement. Right. And I suppose what started as a quest to better understand how people market their companies became something much deeper about how do we yes. organize our business lives our organizations yeah. right yeah absolutely. how do we lead how do we lead mm-hmm. yeah um so yeah so that 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 so that led you to the conscious capitalism book and and the, and the movement and that's where i first yeah right. came across you right. across your work so what's the evolution then um from the, the the ideas in conscious capitalism to what to what you're now exploring this idea of the the healing organization what's what's the shift there 
Yeah, so I think it was, you know, it's it's a series of things that built. So, so that book came out in 2013, Conscious Capitalism. And then after that, I worked on a couple of other books that kind of became building blocks for the healing organization. So one was called Everybody Matters, The Extraordinary Power of Caring for Your People Like Family. And 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 I, I discovered a leader, Bob Chapman, and a company, Barry Waymiller, which in many ways is an exemplar of a healing organization. And Bob buys distressed, dying companies. 108 of them at last case, probably up to 120 by now. And all struggling and you know, dying businesses, and he never sells them at all. I mean, he buys them and that's it. He's never sold a single company. And the same business that was struggling and, and dying in small industrial towns in Midwest uh, United States, and now increasingly in Europe as well. The same company, same business, same people, it was struggling and now it's thriving because he goes in and changes the culture and changes the values and treats people with respect and dignity and care, right? And he keeps buying every year 10 to 15 more companies and turns them around. And, and he does it. You know, I asked him at one point, Bob, I said, why do you keep buying so many companies? You know, you've got enough now, right? Like, uh, when, is, when do you say enough? When you have 26 grandchildren and 108 companies, the ratio seems out of whack, right? If you have uh, more companies than grandchildren, maybe you should slow down. He <laughs> <laughs> just said uh, to me that, Raj, I don't know how much time I have left. And on my deathbed, I will not be proud of the money I made or the machines we built. I will be proud of the lives we touched. Right? And I want to touch as many lives as I can before I die. I want to improve. So I said, Bob, you're not growing a business. You're spreading a ministry. It's like a healing ministry. You know, When Bob Chapman comes to town, life gets better. Right? People have a future. People have hope. And you know, conversely, when a company like 3G Capital out of Brazil comes to town and they buy your company, they're going to lay off 20, 30 percent of the people, and they're going to instill this and buy the numbers thing. And you know, it's just going to become like a rapidly moving treadmill and tremendous stress and pressure. And life gets very bleak and very hard when a different kind of buyer buys your company. Right? So there's an energy of healing versus an empire-building energy that that uh, pervades so much of business. So that book kind of primed me for this these thoughts. And then I wrote another book called Shakti Leadership, which is about the feminine, integrating the feminine into leadership. Right? Because leadership uh, has forever, I suppose, been an exclusively masculine energy dominated, male dominated as well as masculine energy dominated uh, activity, right? And it's all about, you know, of course, strength, courage, focus, resilience, discipline, the positive, uh, mature masculine qualities. But in the absence of the feminine, it becomes domination, aggression hyper-competition, winning at all costs, you know, business is war, everything is war, right? Sports is war, war is war, business is war, <laughs> everything is a war. And that's just very toxic and creates a lot of suffering, right? So in that book, we talk about the rise of the feminine and how we need to incorporate more of that, not only have more women, but also more feminine energy, even among men, caring, compassion, empathy, inclusiveness, you know, love, etc., forgiveness. Those are so you know, seen as feminine qualities. And that's what we need to integrate. So that's a kind of, um, and that's a healing energy, you know, that loving energy, et cetera. That's where healing comes from. And also the idea of becoming whole, because when you are operating just as a half a human being, with purely that side, because all of us have those two sides to us, right? Where we just have suppressed those feminine uh, qualities. Um, that integrating those together makes you a whole person. And that heals you. You know, the roots mm. of healing are actually in wholeness yes. and in, in holiness, right? So those ideas were kind of with me. And then uh, eventually, 
And I also was using healing as an acronym for the qualities of a great purpose. I came every, I said every great purpose at some level needs to be a healing purpose. It's about reducing suffering and elevating joy and promoting healthy growth. I also stood for the qualities of, you know, it's heroic and evolving and aligning and loving, et cetera. Uh, so that, that's kind of the, uh, the journey up to it. And then uh, as we started to look at why this matters, you know, if you look at the way we traditionally do business, what are the consequences of that on people? What is the human cost of doing business? You know, you look at an income statement or a balance sheet, you won't see anywhere the human cost. The fact that heart attacks are 20% higher on Mondays. And have gone down in the, in the current crisis, right? With less of course, right now all yeah. bets are off, but you know, the way we normally work, right? Where 120,000 Americans are estimated to die every year from stress connected to work. Not the work itself, but the way we lead, manage, and organize, right? When 600,000 Chinese die every year from overwork. You know, this is what our capitalist business system is, is consuming in terms of uh, human well-being, right? And causing a lot of suffering. Uh, when 87% of people are disengaged from their work worldwide. Right? And then, of course, all the suffering we're causing uh, uh, to animals as well as to the environment. And so there's a huge amount of suffering that's silent suffering for the most part that's going on. There's a lot of financial distress. 50% of Americans have less than $400 in the bank. And these are people who are working full time, right? And they live with tremendous stress. So there's just traditional business causes enormous suffering. It doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to kill people to make money. And to the contrary, the more we can help people flourish and thrive and, 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 and uh, you know, be filled with joy, the better our businesses are going to do. So that's kind of the purpose of that book, to show that. Yeah. Yes, and the other thing you talked about with these other two energies, right, in the start of the book, you talk about the masculine, the feminine, the child and the elder. Can you talk a little yes. bit about that? Yeah, so these are the four energies that I think really define us as human beings. And they can be looked off, looked at in terms of what's within each of us, but also within our families, within our cultures, our communities and companies as well. And the four energies, as you said, there's the masculine energy or the healthy father energy. There's the healthy mother energy, the mature feminine. There's also the elder energy, which is meaning and purpose and wisdom and legacy and thinking beyond your lifespan and beyond, beyond your immediate circle of influence. And then there's the child energy, which is joy and innocence and creativity, you know, and, and playfulness and humor, right? And I think a healthy human being is a composite of all four of those, a whole human being. Uh, the phrase that my co-author uh, on Shakti Leadership, Nilima, came up with, and we're actually going to write a book with this title, next year probably, it's called The Wise Fool of Tough Love. Okay. Right? That the uh, perfect human being and the perfect leader is in fact all of those qualities. They have wisdom, they have foolishness, in other words, playfulness, right? Uh, they are tough and they are loving. As Martin Luther King said, they're tough-minded and tender-hearted at the same time, which is the masculine feminine, and you've got the wisdom and the uh, joy, right? And if you look at a person like the Dalai Lama, I mean, to me, he embodies that, right? He's got tremendous wisdom. He's always giggling and, you know, coming with a light heart, right? And of course, he's extremely strong and tough, but very, very loving and caring. So that's really the goal. And uh, I believe all of us can get there in our own way. We can each be a unique, wise, full of tough love. My default tendency might be in one or two of those areas. In my case, I probably say I probably default more 
uh, to the wisdom side and to the loving side. And maybe my toughness and uh, you know the, the foolishness are not as well developed, but those need to be elevated. Once I'm aware of that, I can then uh, cultivate those qualities, right? Because awareness and consciousness can then evolve in that way so that ultimately I'm able to be all of that. And I can then show up with the right energy as needed. So with the discernment to know what is needed, right? And then the flexibility to show up with that. So in this situation calls for a light heartedness. So this situation calls for some tough love, et cetera. And to be able to show up with that energy while being authentic to who you are. You're not acting, right? You're just revealing that side of your, your persona or your being. So that's really those four energies. And each of those can have a, a sort of a shadow side, right? We can have the hyper-masculine domination aggression, right? We can have the hyper-feminine sentimental and needy. We can have the... Uh, sort of the negative elder energy, uh, you know, which would be sort of dogma and division, right? And, and we can also have unhealthy child energy, which could be sort of self-indulgent and, uh, and adolescent. So we want to stay away from those lower manifestations of those four energies and stay in those upper, uh, upper reaches of those. And how do we cultivate practices around that? Yeah, yeah. And, and you point in the book, which, which was fascinating to me, was in the, in the founding of America, um, where there was a very strong focus on this masculine energy, which may have carried through to, I suppose, the capitalist system that we all look to for reference in America. Uh, but actually, there was a, a question at the time of whether they ought to be more influenced by the way that the, the tribal system there was operating amongst the Native Americans. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, this was kind of an interesting uh, discovery for me. I didn't know about the Iroquois Confederacy, which had been uh, operating for about 200 years by the time the uh, founding fathers started to write the uh, the, the Constitution and the uh, design the structure of the U.S. government. And the Iroquois Confederacy consisted of six or seven warring tribes in the northeast part of the United States and, and parts of Canada, which uh, came together under a peacemaker. 200 years prior, and created a kind of a federated system where they had a, uh, a sort of a joint leadership at the top, and then they allowed you know each of the tribes to have their own identity and, and leaders. And, and so that's kind of the two-tier system that the United States ultimately had, the 13 colonies and then the United States, right? And they had mechanisms to allow for sort of the blending of centralization versus decentralization. You know, they had the, their version of a Supreme Court, the three branches, et cetera, et cetera. They had many of the elements and these hadn't existed anywhere else in the world uh, in history as far as the founding fathers could find. And so when they finally found it right in their backyard and they went to learn about that and incorporated a lot of that uh, into, uh, into the United States uh, system of government. But there was one key element uh, which you noted, which is that there was a council of, of uh, mothers and grandmothers uh, which actually selected the leader of the Confederacy. And, uh, and that council could step in and replace that leader. The leader was too warlike, uh, was not thinking about the well-being of everybody, not being inclusive, or not thinking long-term enough. Right? They have this, this uh, philosophy of seven generations. You're supposed to think about every decision in terms of its impact on the next seven generations. So that was a way of bringing in that feminine perspective. Essentially, and, and the elder perspective, right? The, the longer term. Yes, yeah. no, of course. Yeah. So these were grandmothers. You're right. Grandmothers as well as mothers, right? 
And so, and, and that, of course, was rejected out of hand because, you know, we had only founding fathers in this country. There was no founding mother. Uh, the closest we came was Abigail Adams, John Adams's wife. And she tried valiantly, and I think I quote those, some of those course, the yeah, correspondence the letters, between the yeah. two of them, which is, uh, please, sir, do not forget the ladies uh, as you design this, you know, this new country and this new government. Because remember that men are wont to uh, to turn into tyrants. They're left to their own devices, right? And uh, and of course, they laughed it off. And, and uh, not only did women not get the right to vote, for another 140 years, women could not own property, women could not inherit property. You know, this was a complete sidelining of the feminine from the political as well as the economic realms of society, right? And that, I think, you know, we paid a dear cost price for that because there's a very violent uh, sort of history uh, in this country. <clears throat> and, um, you know, the continuation of slavery beyond where it should have, you know, it should have died away much earlier. I mean, this is the only country that had to fight a war to end slavery. And all of the countries abolished it by decree, right? When they, the consciousness rose to a level, they said, my God, how, how is this, <laughs> you know, it's an acceptable practice for civilized human beings. But the United States fought the bloodiest war it has ever fought to end that. So so I think it was that hyper-masculine, you know, this is a hyper-masculine you know, energies of the DNA of, of this country. We've still not had a woman president, for example, right? which is shocking. I mean, that's, that's the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote this year. So I think that's some of the historical backdrop. And I think in capitalism as well, I point out that, you know, Adam Smith is the father of uh, of modern capitalism right, the market system and how that works with the wealth of nations. But he also wrote the theory of moral sentiments, which was about the human need to care, that we have a need to care for each other and care, you know, without regard to self-interest. And these are parallel things that we have. We have self-interest, but we also have the need to care. So I, 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 the way I say it is that capitalism had a mother and a father, and they were both Adam Smith. <laughs> but, uh, but we rejected the mother energy that was in theory of moral sentiments, because what we do is we take our mothers for granted and we always are trying to emulate our fathers because they're out there in the world achieving worldly things and we take the human things for granted. And I think that's what, you know, our time now is sort of a return. And I was just reading an article this morning about a, by Aviva Wittenberg-Cox about uh, the countries that have really managed the current crisis the best uh, are all led by women. There's seven countries. Uh, Germany, Denmark, Finland, Norway, Iceland, New Zealand, and Taiwan. And they're all led by women. And they all took bold, decisive, loving action early on. And they're both, all of them are, you know, with, with sort of tiny numbers, you know, in terms of uh, deaths and so forth, right? So there's something in that quality, you know, and you know, those, those feminine qualities which have been lacking and missing in the world of business, that that's really what, and, and in politics, for that matter. That's what's really sorely needed. So it's a blend of both, healthy masculine, healthy feminine, all, all of those energies. Yeah, that's right. It's the it's the balance. Because I think we're seeing a lot of vilification of masculine energy right now. Oh, no, that's, yeah, yeah, we need that too. We need uh, the healthy masculine. We need, we need courage, resilience, focus, discipline, you know, in structure, right? That's a whole human being. You know, in India, we have gods to depict every everything, right? So there's a god that we have in India called the Ardhanadeshwar, which is half male, half female. So if you look at the illustrations, you'll see on this side, it's like Shiva, which is masculine, it's powerful and strong. 
And then on the other side, you have the grace and the beauty and the, you know, the, the feminine. Yeah. Right? And that's kind of a depiction of that's, we're all born with these separate genders and identities, but we are evolving in our lifetimes and beyond towards wholeness. Yeah. And that wholeness is that integration. That integration of the energies. And if that, that could be a metaphor then for stakeholder capitalism, right? Yeah. Is this balancing of these needs? Yeah, it's inclusive and uh, yeah, it, it integrates all of these. Because we know that the absence of any one of them is ultimately going to bring down the whole. Right? Because it is a system. And if you don't pay attention to every component of a system, ultimately the whole system cannot function. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so in the book, then you, you, you go on to describe several cases um, of examples of healing organizations. If you had to pick a few, which would you select to, to, to illustrate this new way? Oh, yeah, we have about 20 plus stories, I think, in the book. That's right. And uh, I think that's really the heart of the book are the stories. And uh, if I had to pick a couple, I think one would be uh, Apple Tree Answers, the, the story that we call the, uh, what do we call it? The parable of the pothole, right? And that's the idea that, uh, <clears throat> you know, most businesses have kind of these, uh, these two classes of employees. Uh, they have sort of the managers and the executives, you know, college educated, professional, salaried, benefits, you know, uh, leadership development, pro, you know, all, all that stuff that we do. And then you've got probably 80, 90% of the people who actually do the work, right? The front line, if you will, uh, mostly paid hourly in the U.S., uh, without much benefits, with very little security and not paid very well, not treated very well, and high levels of turnover, low levels of engagement, and, and, a, and a tough life. So this company is Apple Tree Answers, which is a call center company. And uh, when John Ratliff uh, started one of these, and then he bought a whole bunch of others and kind of rolled up into a second largest call center company in the U.S. and started to look more formally at some of these kinds of things. And he was shocked that the uh, employee turnover uh, there's one average number, but then if you look at it by the hourly versus the salary, it's very different. Right? The turnover was 118% for the hourly people. It was only in the, in the teens for the uh, salary. And engagement was the opposite. Engagement was pretty high for the salaried and very, very low in the teens for the hourly. So he said, wow, that's, that's a whole different uh, experience that people have at this company. And how can I improve that? How can I reduce the turnover? How can I make their life better. I so started to really listen and, and, uh, and observe what they were doing and, uh, and, and started to do some basic things like just asking people, what can we do to make your life better every day? Tell us something. You know? So the, the chairs were causing backaches, so they replaced the chairs and things like that. But then he also discovered, of course, that people are living at the edge, you know, because uh, if, if they only have a few hundred dollars in the bank and something happens in their life, Suddenly, they could be out on the street. They could lose their home. They could lose their car. They, you know, some their kid gets sick, and you don't have insurance or car break. So the way we illustrate that is by uh, imagining that what if the chief financial officer is driving to uh, the office one day, and her car hits the pothole, her Mercedes, and uh, blows out the tire, damages the rim. So she calls the uh, AAA, and they come and uh, uh, tow the car away to the Mercedes dealer, and then she gets the lift to her office and uh, gets there about an hour late and everybody's very solicitous of her and say, are you okay? That must've been so scary what you just had to go through. 
And that afternoon, the car is delivered, it's washed, it's cleaned, it's repaired, and insurance covered most of what she had to pay. So this is a non-event in her life. If anything, she got a clean car out of it, right? Um, I said, imagine one of our hourly workers is driving that same road in her uh, 15-year-old $800 car, and she blows uh, her tire and, and damages her rim, and she doesn't have AAA. She can't afford it. And she finally calls around and gets the car towed because she has to get it off the road and then uh, taken to uh, some um, mechanic. And she can't afford $35 to uh, hire a taxi to get to work, so she calls her friends, and somebody finally picks her up and drops her off. And she gets to work three hours late and she's told the supervisor and he wants to see you, he's really mad. And uh, she goes in and he reprimands her harshly and he tells her that this is a strike against your record and two more of these and you'll be out. It's a black mark and um, you'll be fired. And at the end of all of that, he says, now go and answer the phones and be nice to our customers. Yeah. yeah. Now, this woman's life is falling apart. She has $160 in the bank, and she has no idea how much this is going to cost, but it's going to be more than that. Uh, she doesn't know how she's going to get home, how she's going to get to work, how she's going to pick up uh, or drop off her kids, uh, et cetera. Her life is falling apart, and we're kicking her when she's down. Right. And then and, expecting her to be nice to our customers, right? Yeah. And, and the, the, the thing is that people are stoic and people are heroic. I mean, the fact is they come, they show up, they do their jobs. And for the most part, they do it well, right? Despite the burdens of all the things that they're carrying around. If you could see a thought bubble over everybody's head, what they're dealing with, you know, outside of work and even at work, it would be heartbreaking. So, so then they started a program called Dream On, which is basically uh, intended to help people in times of need. And so we're going to create a fund. And if you have a need like this, please, we don't want uh, these small you know, things to derail. So we want to do what we can to help. And for 10 days, nobody replied because people are stoic, right? And then they just, uh, they don't want to feel, uh, you know, they feel almost ashamed of asking for help. And they want to appear professional and strong. And then finally, after 10 days, a woman wrote in and said, I'm so sorry. She started by saying, I'm sorry, but I need help. Uh, my ex-husband stopped paying alimony two weeks ago and uh, my children and I got evicted from our apartment last week. And I've been living in the car for a week now with my two kids. And I'm sorry that I can't do this to them anymore. I just need help. You know, John Ratliff sees this and you know, all he feels is a deep sense of shame. So what kind of a company am I running here? <clears throat> a mother who works here full time is homeless and cannot even let us know. It took her a week to just even tell us that. You know, what kind of a leader am I? What kind of company is this? So of course, then they helped her right away. They got her into a hotel and they helped her get a new apartment. They did all the things. And they told her, we can keep this uh, quiet. We don't have to tell anybody if you want to you know, preserve your privacy. She said, no, nobody has ever done anything this nice for me in my whole life. I'm going to tell everybody I know. So the word got out and before you know it, the floodgates opened and so many other stories came pouring out of uh, suffering. And you know they could do something about that. And the thing is, you know, over a period of a year or so, their turnover rate, which was 118%, went all the way down to, I believe, somewhere like 15%, 16%. Right. So and this is turnover in terms of staff turnover. So, yeah. Yeah. So, that, so, so you can uh, imagine but, the financial so, implications of that, right? So it's not like all of these things, you know, they cost money, and but, you know, it's really about, you know, it's about caring. Uh, but they always end up 
being better for the business too. We don't do it for that reason. You do it for the right reasons because you want to care for people. But when you do that, other beautiful things also happen. Yeah. yeah. So uh, another story we have in the book is uh, Greystone Bakery, which is a, uh, a company here in Yonkers, New York, which is uh, near New York City. Uh, Yonkers is one of the wealthiest uh, counties in the United States, but also has one of the highest rates of homelessness. And there was a Buddhist uh, Zen master named Bernie Glassman uh, who wanted to do something to help the homeless people and people in need. Right? So he's done many things for many people, but this was a particular passion of his to do something about this. So he wanted to give them a way out. If you look at the people who are at that level, you know, a lot of them have drug addiction problems, but a lot of them also were incarcerated. They were caught up in the criminal justice system, which in the United States, I would say that is one of the black marks in this country, you know, one of the uh, sort of shadows that the United States has more prisoners per capita and even in absolute numbers than any other country in the world by far. Right? We're 5% of the world's population, maybe 20% of the world's prisoners. And a higher percent, you know, 70 million Americans have some kind of a criminal record in their past. Uh, the same number that have a four-year college degree. So the problem is vast. And then there's a, there's a box, there's a check, you know, a box you have to tick, check mark, uh, as to have you ever been arrested or convicted, et cetera, when you, when you apply for a job. And if you check that, then typically you get screened out, right? So the doors are closed. And of course, a lot of these people come from the minority communities, African-American, et cetera. So what Bernie Glassman said, I want to give people a first chance. People don't even get a first chance in our country. Forget about a second chance because they're born in the ghettos. They have terrible schools. They're surrounded by drugs and violence. There's no hope. There's no future. And they get caught up as a matter of survival in doing you know, these things. And then you know, from that point on, their lives are essentially thrown away. So he said, I want to give them a first chance. So he created Brayston Bakery. He chose uh, baking because something is a skill that can be taught relatively easily uh, to anybody. And he, he created what he called open hiring. So basically, there's a list. You put your name on that list. They hire the next person. No background checks and no interviews. They'll train them for nine months and then put, place them in a job. And then that gives them a step forward. And from that, then they can evolve into whatever else that they want to do, right? So that, and that's basically what Grayston has done. They said, we don't hire people to bake brownies. We bake brownies to hire people. And we hire people so that we can give them a start, a first chance towards evolving in their life. And that's, you know, if you look at the stories of some of those people, you know, who had been in jail multiple times, Nobody would give them a job. They found Grayston. Now they, you know, it's, uh, one of the people we talked to, Dion. You know, he has a daughter. He has an apartment. He's a training supervisor. He makes sixty-five thousand dollars a year. His life has turned around. He and he had tears in his eyes as he spoke. He said, "If it were not for this company, I would either be dead or I would be back in jail." So this is the power of business to heal, right? And it's a multi-generational impact that we can have. You know, we have another story in the book about Jaipur rugs, which is a similar story, but this is about the weavers and the uh, untouchable community in India uh, that make the carpets and how those women are mistreated by everybody, including their parents and their husbands and their in-laws and the contractors, and they're abused, you know, and uh, exploited their whole life. And uh, and uh, N.K. Chaudhary said, they're the innocents. I want to serve the innocent people because they have never harmed anybody and all they do is take, you know, work hard and take care of other people. So they created a company where their well-being is at the center and they're having a massive impact. 40,000 women and their children and their children, you know, multi-generations will be impacted by the way this business treats them and, and what it has done for them. So that's the power of 
business, I believe business, you know, we are here on this planet to care for each other. And business is a way we can do that at scale. So yeah. if we start business with the right energy, which is about caring, it's about expressing myself and caring for others. Right. So finding my passion, my purpose, and doing that in a way that actually lifts other people up. If we do business with that energy, it becomes a healing activity. But if I use it as a way to serve myself and use other people, I use my employees, I exploit my customers, etc., to make money for myself, then I'm going to cause suffering. Right? So the yeah. same exact business can be done with a different mindset and different energy behind it. One becomes a healing organization, the other one becomes a place of suffering. And that's what I think, that's the dominant model, unfortunately, right now in the world of business is what causes suffering. I think we want to shift over to that other way of thinking and being. Yeah. And, and I reflected as, a, as I was reading the book on, you know, the, the company you're very close to, Whole Foods, and then Amazon. So it's, Amazon is, is, cust- is explicitly customer first, right? It's not a stakeholder business. It, it, it puts one class of people, their interests above all else. Uh, and and Whole Foods has now become part of that. So it's interesting to me that a a lot of our largest and most successful businesses right now aren't necessarily following that paradigm. You know, what what do you make of that? Well, you know, I think it's a matter of time because, you know, that becomes your vulnerability. That becomes your Achilles heel Uh, when your employees, you know, I believe Amazon has made some strides in that direction. I think it has gotten better than what it used to be. Their warehouse working conditions, their leave policies for maternity, various things definitely have gotten better. Are they all the way there? No, I would want to see them do more. And the hope is that Whole Foods might be able to influence them a little bit, you know. So it's a two-way influence. So so this is a journey. Different companies are at different stages. Different companies have different blind spots. A lot of companies treat suppliers as sort of stepchild, you know, uh, stakeholders. Um, but but I think it's, it's, it's an evolution towards getting all of them in harmony. Yeah. that we're working towards. And I, and I think, and you talked about, uh, John Perkins has been a guest on the show and you talk about oh, him in the John. book. Yeah, and you talk about, uh, if we had more time, I'd love to hear more about your expeditions with him. But, yes. but you know, but you, he talks about this idea of dreaming a new dream and you reference yes. that in the book. Yes, yes. And, I, and that to me came through powerfully, this idea that one of the ways we change business is to conceive of it differently, right? To, uh-huh. to dream an, a new yes. dream. yeah. Yeah, that, that, that idea comes from the native people of uh, South America, right? the different uh, uh, tribes like the Achuar and the Zapara and so forth. They're, the world is as you dream it. Right? And so they place great power in literally in dreams. Every night, every morning, they start their day with dream interpretation by the shamans. And they believe that they're receiving signals from somewhere about things. Uh, but also that everything we see around us started first in somebody's mind before it manifested out in the world. So what is the, and if you're not happy with what's out there, we need to dream a new dream. And that's, I think, what we're looking at today in business and in society generally, is that we had certain dreams and it's now manifested in what it is, uh, but we're not happy with many aspects of it. So we need to go back and redream and then recreate uh, from that, you know, and, uh, and dream in a way that is now not just you know, rooted in self and material in short term, but actually more holistic, inclusive, long term. Yeah. Flourishing of all life. So I think that's what we have to do at this point. A beautiful point to end the show. I know I know you need to get to your, your next appointment. Um for those who want to buy the book, The Healing Organization, uh fantastic. I thoroughly recommend it. Uh is there anywhere else you, you would send people who are interested in the themes we've discussed? 
Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it is, I believe this month on Amazon, you can get the Kindle version just for $2, $1.95 or something else. So, uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, consciouscapitalism.org, if you're interested in conscious capitalism as a movement, which is growing rapidly. Uh, and my website is rajasodia.com. Okay. Well, Raj, thank you so much once again. It's been a, it's been a pleasure and a privilege. And uh, yeah, you're very welcome, Richard. I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.